Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guests are four of the lawyers who were a part of the legal team that secured the $787 million settlement against Fox News on behalf of Dominion Voting Systems. They're here today to talk about defamation when you should think about suing, when maybe you should let some stuff go. Chances are you have or will hear something unflattering about yourself at some point from somebody. Sometimes maybe the smartest thing is not to plot a pathway to the courthouse, but uh, you can listen to Megan, Daniel, and Dustin and Andrew on that. We also talked about what happens when people make things up in court. What happens when they commit just brazen falsehoods in a court pleading or in a courtroom? Because the remedies there are very, very different than they might be when people lie in other places. So here I am with Megan Meyer, Daniel Watkins, Dustin Push, and Andrew Phillips. They recently just opened up their own firm in Washington, D.C., Meyer, Watkins, Phillips, and Push. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to subscribe. Welcome to the podcast and congratulations on your new firm. Congrats, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Where does the line of this is my First Amendment right, my free speech right to say this thing, even if you think it's stupid, where does that line end and the line for defamation liability begin? Because I think sometimes people get confused. Uh, they think that the right to have an opinion means that you can share that opinion and say what you like, wherever you like. Megan, uh, elaborate if you would on how, where, where is that line? Help people understand where that line exists. So we have a first amendment that protects our right to free speech. It's a constitutional right. And I think the Supreme Court said it best when they said, there's no constitutional value in false assertions of fact, right? So that's the crux of a, of a, that's the heart of a defamation claim is a false assertion of fact. So you can have your opinion, you can say, I don't like the food at that restaurant. But if you say, I don't like the food at that restaurant because I found a dead rat in it, and you didn't in fact find a dead rat in it, then you, then you could expose yourself to defamation liability if you cross that line. Daniel, something else that I think a lot of people find troubling, especially people who aren't lawyers, is the extent to which people can say just about whatever they like. I know there are limits on this, but just about whatever they like in a complaint. And it's privileged. Can you explain a little bit to my audience about, one, why folks can say things in legal filings that may not be true, even if they know they're not true? And two, what's the recourse that people have? Because you can't sue somebody for defamation if they say something in a lawsuit that is false, but you do have some other options. Can you explain, my friend? That's a great question. And we certainly want to be sure that people asserting legal claims are given a wide range of options in terms of making accusations in the context of pursuing a lawsuit against someone and pursuing damages uh, based on those allegations. Now, in terms of recourse, if a lawyer puts something in a complaint that is false, 
Then there are sanctions that are available. There are disciplinary actions from the bar association for the various states that they practice in. And so that's the real recourse. But it's very important that the legal process is protected. Otherwise, every time someone filed a lawsuit, they would be sued for defamation for whatever they put in their pleadings. And as officers of the court, um, we do our best to investigate anything before we include it in a complaint and um, follow all of the ethical guidelines related to that. But it, re it is really important to protect that privilege in the context of court proceedings so that people are able to prosecute their claims. And there, there's, a, there's another, uh, it's, it's a rarely used mechanism, but, you know, some states do have what's called the sham litigation exception. And that's when uh, a, you can prove that somebody put something in a complaint just for the sake of being able to try to get the protection when they knew it was false. And it's, it, not every state has it. Varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that's another recourse that may be available to some folks. But Daniel's exactly right. There is recourse and it's in the form of, you know, part of it's us, you know, not, you know, having having recourse for putting false things in 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 filings. And that's that's a, that's actually a really important one. I've had lawyers say to me that these days it's kind of like the Wild West. So there may be some officers, many, I think most most uh, lawyers, most people act in good faith. And there may be many, many officers of the court who do pay attention to those rules. But are you finding, and I'll throw this open to anybody, maybe uh, you, Andrew, how often do you see lawyers actually taken to task when they or their clients cross the line. If you want to have uh, a free and fair trial, you have to give people the freedom to make claims that they subsequently have to prove. But you all know as well as I do that there are plenty of people who know that you put something in a complaint, it's going to make press, it's going to get in the news even before it sees a courtroom. And there's a lot of leverage in that. Do you think that with the rise of social media and all these platforms that it's just that people are becoming a little less careful about uh, what they put in their court filings? Oh, for sure. And I, I think I'm with you, Tanya, and I'm a little more skeptical of this privilege than my colleagues. I think the idea behind it makes sense, but it's kind of like a people can't have nice things situation. Like it gets abused. And when you know that you can put things in a, a court filing with impunity, a lot of lawyers take advantage of that. And, you know, on top of that, you've got something called the fair report privilege, which means if it's in a court filing, now the media can report on it with no fear, really, of themselves being liable. And so they don't have to care if it's true or false. So I think kind of the double whammy of that, there's a lot of incentive to abuse it. And I think the worst part about it is that to the layman, you know, maybe the non-attorney out there, I think it comes with sort of a stamp of legitimacy if it's in a court filing even though I think most practicing litigators would tell you that something that's in like a civil complaint should most certainly not be taken as gospel. So I think it's unfortunate, but uh, you know, it, it is what it is as far as the law and there's just an awful lot of protection for what's said in a court filing. Can I give an example of this, Tanya, in a recent case that Daniel and I had? Daniel and I just represented a, a wonderful tech company called Every Realm that had terrible, terrible false allegations made against them in a civil complaint, really salacious allegations, one of which was that this ex-football player 
had been racially discriminated against because the company had deprived him of equity in the company, unlike his similarly situated white counterparts. The problem is we had a signature on the stock option grant where he got equity in the company, the same as everybody else. But this allegation goes into a civil complaint. It gets picked up by the news media. The company is racist. It was completely false. But a lie gets all the way around the world before you know the truth can get its pants on. It's tricky in that situation. Then he went on Twitter and he repeated the allegation on Twitter and Daniel and I sued him. <laughs> and so that case recently settled because you know you can't say lies on Twitter with impunity. You can get sued for what you say on, on Twitter if it's false and defamatory. Well, let's go back to his claim itself. So you're talking about a situation where someone says, I didn't get this stock grant because of my race. It turns out they actually did get the stock grant. So before we even get to that person repeating the false claim on Twitter, they have a blatantly false claim in the, as, as a core element of their case. Were there any repercussions to them? Were there any sanctions? Did anything happen as a result of that false statement? The attorney withdrew that one allegation from the broader complaint, but the damage at that point is, is done, really, right? And so we were happy to be able to negotiate a settlement on this alongside our fabulous, fabulous employment uh, council, who we work with all the time in New York. You know, once it's out there, it's, you know, it's kind of out there already. Once the press picks it up, they're not as interested in the correction as they are in the initial lie that, that made headlines. I think, the Tony, the answer to your question is, had he not put it out on Twitter, it would have been harder. harder and what, how that would have played out had that error not been made, it would be a, a little bit of a different, a different story. I think you're absolutely right. Your new firm is focusing on defamation cases, reputation management. And I got to ask you, um, and again, you all have experience with this. We know how quickly it is. I mean, you said it, Megan. A lie can travel the world before the truth gets its pants on. And while it's traveling the world, you get a whole bunch of people, presumably reasonable people, presumably thoughtful people, people who have busy lives, busy jobs, people who aren't going to necessarily do the research and do their due diligence on everything they read on the Internet. So it's really easy for people to believe false things for a long time and for uh, false claims, I think, to really take hold and to capture many, many imaginations. I mean, we've seen that um, over the past couple of years in our, in our public life. What's the defense? I mean, how do you protect someone's reputation in an environment where you've got 10 people believing a lie you know, while they're still in the meeting with you. Someone comes to you and they say, so-and-so, just put this out there about me. It's already got 100,000 views before our meeting's even over. You know, before you get to litigation, how do you counsel people in this kind of environment? One of the biggest areas of our practice is you, you gotta kill the lie before it gets published, right? So a big part of our practice is I get a call from 
general counsel of a Fortune 100 company. The Wall Street Journal just called us. They're about to print a story accusing our CEO of insider trading. They asked for a comment. Their deadline's in two hours. What do we do? And we answer, what do we do? How do we slow it down? How do we get the facts? How do we get the evidence and the people on the phone? And how do we help the Wall Street Journal understand they've been misinformed. They've been given bad information. Here's the right information. I'm not picking on the journal. It could be any paper. I mean, the you know, journal is probably one of the, the probably our, our nation's top paper or one of the top three. I'm not trying to no, call no, sure, it out. But sure. that's what we do is counseling and sort of working with reporters. And we, we partner with crisis PR firms all the time to try to help correct the story before it comes out. Once it comes out, what do we do? We try to get corrections and retractions. And if all else fails, the last result, the last resort is sue for defamation. That's the option here in the United States. In other countries, you, there are criminal penalties for speech. We, we don't do that here because we're Americans and we and we like we love the First Amendment. The other thing is getting the truth out. Right. Because sometimes the truth can be complicated. And and what we do working alongside PR professionals and crisis pro professionals is getting our clients affirmative story out in order to combat the disinformation before it's published or alongside such publication. I'm teaching a class uh, this fall at William and Mary Law School titled Defamation and Disinformation that's tackling these, these very issues. It's, it's complicated. Uh, we're hoping that some of the work we do introduces real risk to large companies that are in the business of publishing stories. So they take a second look before they go out and tarnish someone's reputation. Hopefully some of what we do is instructive to the readers so that it's easier to identify what's false and what isn't. But it's a challenge that we grapple with every single day. And, and Tanya, I'm, I'm hopeful that recent defamation, high profile successes for, for, for clients in that area has created a, a healthy skepticism that don't, you know, do your own work, wait till the facts come out, think critically about what you read and what you hear, you know, don't dismiss the news, but think critically about what you're hearing. And when counter evidence comes out and look for counter evidence if it comes out that there's there's now a little bit of a healthy skepticism given recent high profile cases i'm hopeful that that there is a little bit of the public thinking through this a little bit more and i think that the more that people are held accountable for for lies um, and misinformation that will improve more we do, I think, as a country, we have some heightened sensitivities these days. We are a litigious, litigious place. And I think that there might be situations, I've certainly seen situations where uh, because it's so easy to tell stories about people, because everyone's online, because every social media platform, you know, gives you space to tell a story about someone, and sometimes those stories aren't true. Do you think that because there's also such a proliferation of, let's just say, talking about others in so many places, that sometimes people have to maybe uh, take a step back before that thing that they find offensive or rather before they conclude that that thing they find offensive is actually something that they should consider pursuing in court. I think that's a great point. 
Yes. That, How many that, times this week have you told clients not to sue for defamation? <laughs> we tell people not to sue way more than we tell Probably them. Probably yeah. nine times out of ten, we say, "Okay, here's why you 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 wouldn't want to sue for defamation. What else can we do?" And, <laughs> Sorry. And, and there's something called the, the Streisand effect, right? If I'm falsely accused of something and I decide to sue someone for it, what's more likely than not to occur with most people is more people hear about the accusation and my lawsuit than knew about it in the first place. And so it's counterintuitive. And because of all of the challenges and hurdles related to the First Amendment and different anti-slap statutes, uh, the cost of litigation, the length of litigation, et cetera, filing a defamation suit is typically not the answer for people. And we're the first lawyers in the world yeah. to, to happily say that to, to our clients. And Tanya, you use the use the right word to, to kind of call this out and that's offended. I'm offended by something. And look, everybody is free uh, to, to voice what they're offended by, but that's where we play, our, our, our profession plays a critical role in helping clients determine what is actionable. And, and that's a critical point to make because a lot of people want to you know, hold people accountable for what they don't like, what they find offensive, um, or what they think is uh, not nice to them or something like that. But we really do uh, try to counsel our clients very carefully on what's actionable, what's worth their time from a legal perspective and, and, and what they should really focus on in that regard. Well, and Daniel made a, a good point, which is that because there's so much noise out there, sometimes better off, right? Just ignoring it or just, you know, letting it get drowned out by some other noise than you are by bringing attention to it because then, you know, you're actually giving the lie a story. Andrew, you told me a funny story before we started about someone who had some false statements made about him that he was very irate about, but you uh, told him to take it down a notch and not go to court. I thought it was funny. Can you share that? Yeah, so we were having a discussion of, you know, what does it mean for something to be defamatory? And, and uh, I, I like this story to illustrate the point that something can be false, but not necessarily defamatory. And the, the fact pattern was I have a client very wealthy individual who was accused in a news story of parking his mega yacht uh, near a, a certain tropical resort island. And he was very upset about this because he insisted, I, that's not my yacht. I don't own that yacht. I don't know why they're saying I own that yacht. And I had to explain to him, it may be false to say that you own a mega yacht, but it's certainly not defamatory because it's not <laughs> negative. It doesn't, it, any of us would love to have that mega yacht. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly possible for something to be false, but not meet the legal definition of being defamatory. And that would be an obvious example. It's like somebody falsely said that I was 5'11 and on the cover of a magazine, I can't believe it. Yeah. Like kind of yeah. like that, right? Like that. Honestly, I mean, there's a perfect example of this. The MyPillow guy sued because a paper report that he was dating the movie, the, the television star, Jane Krasinski. <laughs> and he says, it's false. I'm not dating her. <laughs> well, she's a beautiful, she's a beautiful, accomplished actor. And he's my pillow. He's so lucky. <laughs> Krakowski, Jane Krakowski. Well, how did I say her name? You said Krasinski. Oh, oh, yeah, I knew you meant. I knew. Okay. It's um, another famous actress. It's I okay. I botched it, but <laughs> but she's an incredibly talented actor, and and I you know and I looked at this and said it's not defamatory to to falsely accuse you of dating a beautiful, a beautiful person. person. 
Yes. Moving on to really where we are today and where technology is and the ability that all of us have to spread information about people, get information about people. I mean, that's really now in the palm of everyone's hands. And it's also now um, in the palm of the machine's hands because we're dealing with AI. And Megan, um, I know you spoke on this in the publication. We are now seeing cases where people are suing OpenAI because of the false information that comes out of uh, ChatGPT. There was a radio host that's got a claim um, pending. Their uh, lawyers were recently sanctioned for using ChatGPT to write a brief. The brief had some bad cases. <laughs> the machine just made up cases. The lawyers doubled down and were sanctioned as a consequence. Megan, where do you think, what role I should say, or actually, let me ask the question a little differently. Where do you see the law of defamation going in light of these new technologies, right? If, if I'm a lawyer and I go to ChatGPT and ChatGPT pulls up a bunch of information, isn't it reasonable for me to rely on that a little bit? I don't know if I see it going here, but this is where I hope it goes. I think lawyers should be able to use AI technology to get a first draft. I think journalists should be able to use AI technology to get a first draft. But you, we all now know that ChatGPT is a facially unreliable source that makes things up. We know that. And under the existing law of defamation, if a journalist blindly relies on a facially unreliable source, and publishes it to a global internet audience without having fact-checked it and corroborated it, that is circumstantial evidence of actual malice that can subject them to a defamation claim. Actual malice means, did the publisher know or recklessly disregard that this was false? And what I would say is, if you use ChatGPT to write your article for you and your and the publisher pushes it out there without having a, a journalist and a fact checker go and corroborate it, I would say by definition that that is a reckless disregard for the truth and should subject that publisher to defamation liability. I wanna say something about that OpenAI case, the defamation case against OpenAI. Open That's actually an example of the journalist doing exactly what we need journalists to do. So in that case, a journalist got this information out of OpenAI, and then the journalist did what journalists are supposed to do and fact-checked it. And the journalist prevented that from being published out there to a global internet audience. That's what I want to see. And I want to see, um, I've, I've heard scary things about people saying, let's give publishers of OpenAI content immunity under Section 230 for AI-generated content. Imagine this. Imagine we do that, and you have two uh, blogs. They own a bunch of professional, they, they, they employ 10 professional journalists, and you now say to them, hey, you're, you can be sued for what your journalists put out there, but if you fire all your journalists and, and rely on AI-generated content, then you can't be sued for defamation. That giving uh, immunity for AI-generated content being published out to the, to the, to the world on the internet is terrible for journalists. It's terrible for journalism. It's terrible for the integrity of our public debate. 
And it's it's terrible for the fabric of our democracy. So I urge your viewers, do not support immunity for our publishers of AI-generated content. Fine to use it as a first draft journalist, fine for lawyers to use it as a first draft, but we know it's not reliable. You must fact check it before it goes any farther than that. And I think that's really a key point. The machine, I like to call AI the machine, it hallucinates. It hallucinates. Yes. It just, it's, I, I, my niece once did like a search, she did like a chat GPT on me and it literally made stuff up that I've never done. It had me teaching places. I've never just, it, it, it makes things up. And so to your point, since we know that, then perhaps that reliance on it is not, well, not perhaps, uh, reliance on it isn't reasonable without a human backstop. The case with the lawyers, though, I think poses another interesting issue if, uh, if uh, anyone cares to comment, because there it seems these lawyers use ChatGPT to write a brief. And some of the cases that the machine found uh, were not indeed real cases. And when questioned about it, the lawyers doubled down. And I, as I understand it, the reason they were sanctioned is not because they used ChatGPT. They were sanctioned because instead of double checking, they doubled down. So as opposed to other legal platforms, right? Like if we look up cases on Lexis, I don't find a case on Lexis and then go to a law library somewhere and read a book like lawyers did in the old days. Like we're, we can rely on the cases that are pulled up on Lexis, but not so with ChatGPT, correct? Like lawyers, you got to site check those cases. I think that's right. I think that also it, it was truly a matter of first impression, right? For a, for how a judge was going to deal with that. I do. I wouldn't be surprised if going forward, if there wasn't this second level of protection, if a lawyer did that again, um, given how high profile that matter was, and I'm sure that judges across America were, were familiar with it, uh, the idea that a lawyer would get away with doing that in the first instance, I, I think that it's a matter of time where that is going to be sanctionable right off the bat if it's proven that a brief was uh, done entirely through ChatGPT and d no no basis to believe there was any uh, quality check or fact check or or cross referencing of anything. I think that now that we've had the matter the first impression case, I think that you're going to see judges crack down on that in the first instance even more. Can you guys? I hope you're right, but I don't think you are. <laughs> you don't. You, you don't think so, Megan? I have faith. I have faith. You, you I, I'm the I'm the hopeful one. He is. Andy's our Eeyore, and and Dustin's our hopeful one. Can you all imagine <laughs> if, like, when we were young, we get paid by the hour? Why are you using a chatbot? <laughs> right, but this is this is. I've been saying this. The billable hour is going to be over within our within five to ten years because of this because the, the technology is getting so much better so much uh, more quickly. I mean, it's, it's right. And so I think you're going to see, I think it's only a matter of time before lawyers are able to 5X their efficiency. You get your first draft done right away. And then what, what, what the talent that you have is, is in editing, in checking, in, in knowing the right strategic move to make 
But like waiting around for hours and hours for drafts of things, I think we're going to have to, we're have to grow or die. Like, I, I don't think the billable hour is going to be with us a decade from now. I don't think people are going to work less. I think we're going to be able to deliver more value for clients in the, in the amount of time that we lawyers are inclined to work. And I think it's, it has great implications for access to justice. For example, we turn away clients every week because they have a great defamation claim, but they don't have millions of dollars to litigate a case. It costs a ton of money to litigate a defamation case correctly. And I think if we, we can 10X our efficiency in like grinding through document discovery, grinding through first drafts, and, and like get to the heart of things faster and try more cases, I think we can take more cases on contingent, you could take cases on contingency, you can help the average person who is smeared in the media and not just the elite and, and Fortune 100 companies. I'm really excited about what we're gonna see in the next decade because of technology enabling us to get more work done more quickly. Well, the, the other thing that I would say, I've heard stories, I'm, I'm very young, I'm 35, um, but <laughs> I've heard stories about typewriters and dictaphones and all sorts of manner of pre, you know, word processor technology. And um, there are similar types of arguments being made about what happens to the billable hour once we have PCs. And relatedly, spell check is AI. Autocorrect AI, right? And so AI is a tool that we shouldn't be afraid of. We should view it as a way to enhance the deliverables that we can bring to clients. And, and that's what we try to do. But we're certainly not blindly uh, relying on things that we pull off the internet. Right. We need a human backstop. Daniel, you've got a really interesting case pending against McDonald's. Tell us about it, if you would. No, no, that, that's right. Uh, so there's a company called Kitsch that invented the fix for the notoriously broken soft serve machines at McDonald's. I'm embarrassed to admit how many times I've tried to go to McDonald's and get a McFlurry and it never seemed to be working, but uh, <laughs> Kitsch engineered a way to fix those machines. And a short time after they were really picking up momentum from uh, McDonald's owner operators, McDonald's came out with a false statement accusing Kitsch's device of being unsafe. And that false advertising advertisement drove them out of business. And so we filed suit against McDonald's and the maker of the machine. We've had a lot of success uh, during that litigation, including uh, a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction. And so we're really looking forward to continue to hold them accountable and deliver a great result for the client. So I don't understand. What was their basis for saying it didn't work? Did it not work sometimes or were they just doing, uh, in your view, <laughs> that thing that we say people do, which is let's just... Let's just go with something that's not quite true. What was their basis? So in terms of the, the, the soft serve machine itself, is that what yeah, you're asking? Like what was their basis for saying that uh, this device of your clients didn't work? It was unsafe. Yeah, I, I really have no idea. I've been trying to figure that out for two and a half years, um, and we haven't gotten a satisfactory answer. At bottom, it comes down to unfair competition, and the Federal Trade Commission is looking into it for anti-competitive practices. But that's really why we brought the suit, because there's no basis for the claim that Kitch's device was unsafe. Are you going to put McDonald's out of business, Daniel? Is that what this is coming down I, I, to? I can't, I, I can't comment on that. <laughs> And Andrew, I hope when we win that case, we get a McFlurry machine in our new office. Guaranteed, guaranteed. <laughs> I don't think they're going to give you one. Andrew, you told me about an interesting Privacy Act matter that you have pending 
um, against Fox. Tell us about that. Fox not actually the defendant, they're a third party. So in a Privacy Act suit, you are suing the government for the release of uh, protected personal records that may exist in a government database. So uh, my client is uh, a university president in Arlington, Virginia, uh, who some years back was the subject of a federal investigation that uh, ultimately resulted in no charges whatsoever, let alone a conviction. But uh, what appears very likely to have happened is one of the investigators who wasn't happy that uh, the, the case didn't proceed farther uh, elected to try her in the court of public opinion and, and leak her, her protected personal documents to a reporter for Fox News. So as part of that litigation, of course, if you depose all the government folks and all of them swear up and down it wasn't them, um, eventually you need to go to the reporter and say, all right, who was it that told you this? And, and so we reached that stage. The Fox reporter refused to disclose her sources. So we had a whole lot of briefing about the journalist privilege and its application in the Privacy Act context. Uh, just last week, got a great ruling from the federal court in DC, uh, ruling that my client has overcome uh, that uh, journalist privilege challenge and is now entitled to depose that Fox journalist. So it's, you know, th those kind of cases, in, you know, they illustrate kind of where we started this discussion, the, the dichotomy of free speech and where does it end? And, you know, certainly, you know, a reporter's ability to obtain information from sources, you know, has some value. But on the other hand, you know, the Privacy Act itself is an affirmation that government agents leaking information about civilians to damage them is itself you know, morally and legally wrong. And so, you know, those two can come into tension in a Privacy Act case, and, and that's where we are. What was the sort of information that was leaked about your client? It was things like photographs, immigration records, uh, naturalization forms, those sort of things, all of which, you know, the government has, but they're not allowed to, you know, hand out to journalists. The court found, the judge in, your, in this recent hearing you mentioned, found that there's no... Uh, uh, privilege uh, the, the journalist isn't protected um, by the by the privilege from having to disclose her sources. Uh, so what's the Correct. next step? She'll be deposed and then asked at that time who the sources were. At which time she'll decide whether or not she's going to comply with the court order. Yeah, that's correct. She is under a court order to sit for a deposition and divulge that information. And if she elects not to, you know, she may well be subject to contempt proceedings. And uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I would hope that she does the right thing and, and tells the truth, as she's been told to do by a court. If she doesn't, then will you file the contempt? I would think that's very likely. But, uh, you know, again, we'll cross that bridge. Cross when we come that to bridge. It. You're not going to tell us now whether or not you're trying to send folks to jail for not complying with court orders. We're going to cross that bridge when we I come to it. I just want people to tell the truth. I don't want anyone to go to jail. So, so let's hope that's the outcome. Wow, what a political I, answer. I like, actually, I want people to tell the truth and maybe some people should go to jail, but you know, we'll leave <laughs> You four are phenomenal. Congratulations on your settlement. Congratulations on your brand new firm. And uh, I wish you all the best. Keep protecting reputations and keep holding liars accountable. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Bye.